This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Hey, it's Todd, your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is always changing rapidly, and things might have changed by the time you hear this episode. You can stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR station and by visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Todd Zwillick, and it's time once again for the News Roundup. Things seem to be moving fast after Ohio, very red Ohio, by the way, became the latest state to protect abortion rights this week. Axios is reporting that Democrats now are eager to get the abortion rights question onto the ballot next year in key states like Arizona and Nevada and Florida. Well, it turns out voters are proving again and again that they're not interested in outright abortion bans. Now, part of the point here is to help President Biden and other Democrats on the ballot. And another part of the point is to ratchet up pressure on Republican candidates being dragged down, ultimately, by their own victory in overturning Roe. As much as I'm pro-life, I don't judge anyone for being pro-choice, and I don't want them to judge me for being pro-life. But when it comes to the federal law, which is what's being debated here, be honest. It's going to take 60 Senate votes, a majority of the House, and a president to sign it. So let's find consensus. Nikki Haley there at the Republican debate in Miami urging moderation for Republicans. We have lots to talk about today from that debate stage in Miami to a courtroom in New York and a banner moment for country music in Nashville, Tennessee. So let me introduce our band. Joining us is John Yang. He's weekend anchor for the PBS NewsHour. Also with us, Robert Costa, chief election and campaign correspondent for CBS and author of Peril. And from the Associated Press, Sungmin Kim. She's a White House reporter. Thanks, guys, for joining us today. And let's get started in Ohio. Tonight, we've spoken and we stand here united as Ohioans in a historic victory across the state. We're going to bed knowing that we own our own bodies. That's Marcella Azevedo there from the group Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights. She was speaking minutes after it became clear that Ohio would join other states who have voted to enshrine reproductive rights in the state constitution. So, Sungman, how close was the vote in Ohio? Because this one was a long time coming. Right, right. Well, the final tally ended up being more than 13 points in favor of the abortion rights advocates, which in Ohio or in any state is not a close figure. And what the what is so, so much more remarkable about this is that we know Ohio to be a reliably red state now, which is surprising to say for those of us who may have covered politics in, you know, 2008 and 2012 when it was certainly a swing state, but it is reliably red at this point. So for abortion 
abortion politics, pro-abortion pro-abortion rights politics to thrive in a conservative state really tells you something about how potent and how important this issue is for so many voters. And but at, on the other hand, though, it's not quite a surprise either because if you've seen the success of abortion rights advocates and other, you know, more relatively conservative states such as Kansas last year. I mean, this is an issue that has been a really remarkably successful one for Democrats. Mm. And that's why you see um, Democrats really wanting to replicate this issue, not just on the policy, but on the politics next year. And we're going to talk more about that. Robert, we might have seen this coming because Republicans over the summer also saw this coming. They tried to raise the threshold for this constitutional amendment from 50 plus one, a simple majority, up to 60 percent. And they did it because I think they 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 might have seen this very result coming and, and knowing how much of a drag abortion is on Republican electability right now. The Republican Party has been disrupted ever since Roe v. Wade was overturned. I've been covering this in 2022, just covered the off-year elections in 2023. And it's a good example how in politics and policy, sometimes you can make the gains you want on a place like the Supreme Court, but the political fallout can be so unpredictable. And the conservative movement celebrated the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and Republicans felt like they were on the march on this issue. Now they, across the country, my sources feel like they're retreating and they're trying to navigate what does it mean when this whole fight comes to the fore again in a way it wasn't for 50 years Mm. in this country. And there was a lack of preparation politically inside the Republican Party in Ohio, in Virginia, in so many of these places because campaigns have been telling me in recent weeks – that they're noticing that non-voters who are left-leaning supporters of abortion rights are coming out in unprecedented droves. And Robert, what are they saying to you about how to get out of this? I mean, we heard Nikki Haley at the top of the show sort of saying, look, you might want to ban abortion. It's an electoral loser. We've seen people say 15-week limit, 10-week limit. Let's calibrate it to 22-week limit. Frankly, I think that was a a Veep subplot at one point, trying to find (laughs) the exact sweet spot for abortion to not lose on it. What are campaigns telling you about sort of how to get out of this electoral freefall now? Well, the way out of it, from my conversations with various top Republican strategists, is there used to be earlier this year when everyone got into the Republican presidential race, a race to a low number. Uh, in terms of how to restrict abortion in various states, to Florida with Governor DeSantis, six weeks, Governor Youngkin of Virginia pushing 15 weeks. And now no one's talking about six versus 15. They're saying, can we just shelve the issue and stop talking about it? Mm. Because they think the only political winner is talking about the economy and other issues. John Yang, shelving the issue and not talking about it is something Democrats are not interested in doing. Now they're saying, hey, we can we can win in 2024 with democracy and Dobbs. It's kind of a slogan. What does that mean? What are Democrats thinking now? Well, I think they're going to push this as, as a big issue. They see it as a winner for them. It's not a uh, necessarily a partisan issue, but it is helping them. And we saw it in Kentucky, too, where the attorney general, the Republican candidate was the attorney general who has supported in the past a total ban on abortion, no exceptions for rape or incest. Andy Bashir uh, pounded away on that on television. And if you look at the suburbs around since about not only around Louisville, Lexington, but across the river from Cincinnati, across the river from Evansville, uh, they he did very, very well in those areas. Some Democrats are warning it's not going to be enough, though, just to say abortion, abortion, abortion. Right? That that it has to the the idea of abortion restrictions or having the state make your reproductive choices, take your pick, is going to be critical to Democrats, and tying that to the idea of rights 
and democracy, right? How, how is that shaping up for Democrats now? I mean, I think – well, the other problem I think with that is that they – the, the, of just saying abortion is they realize there are other issues. There are the inflation. The economy is still a big issue. Uh, I think they want to talk about abortion and democracy so they don't have to talk about the, the economy and inflation. Sungman, what are your big takeaways on the results? John mentioned Kentucky. We're talking about Ohio. Uh, there were results in Virginia as well. What were you thinking sort of the morning after on Election Day this year? I think obviously, aside from the potency of abortion, it does remind you that a lot of planks of President Biden's agenda really remains popular. So I'm really thinking about, for example, in Kentucky, we know that this is a red state. We knew that President Biden probably was not going to campaign alongside Andy Bashir as he was up for reelection. But a lot of the stuff that Governor Bashir talks about are the kind of things that are very classic Joe Biden in terms of, you know, bipartisan being there for communities when disaster strikes, infrastructure, building bridges, literally and figuratively. Hmm. Um, and that's very Joe Biden. And that's what you're going to hear from Joe Biden as he campaigns uh, as he campaigns for re-election over the next year. But, um, and, and, but it's a really big question of whether the popularity of the Biden's agenda, whether it comes to abortions, uh, democ- abortion, democracy, infrastructure, sort of this classic, um, you know, rebuilding America narrative that the, that uh, Biden is having, whether that translates to the man himself. And I think that's the question that a lot of Democrats are grappling with now in the aftermath of a very good election night on Tuesday, and will continue to grapple with um, in the months and the year ahead. I mean, our latest AP poll has Biden's approval at 38%. If you are an incumbent president, that is not a good number. But Biden's people are very confident that once you know Trump is formally the nominee, it seems that he is all but certain to be the Republican nominee. But once it really is clear that he is going to be President Biden's uh, general election uh, challenger, then they can really much more forcefully make it a contrast between the two. And that's where they feel that they will have the upper hand. Well, as Sungmin said, eyes are turning toward 2024 and not just for Joe Biden, also for West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. I've made one of the toughest decisions of my life and decided that I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle. Joe Manchin is 76. He's been representing West Virginia, one of the only, probably the only Democrat to win statewide in West Virginia in in many, many years. And Robert, um, that's Joe Manchin um, saying that he thinks maybe there's a place for a third party or someone perhaps with no labels. I'm just not sure. I think he's a little young, 76 years old in American politics today, (laughs) younger than former President Trump, younger than President Biden. Probably needs a little more seasoning in the U.S. Senate. He might qualify for child care in the U.S. Senate, maybe. (laughs) I mean, it's just – look, he's a young guy. I wish him well. No, I'm just joking. But (laughs) Senator Manchin, this is something you have to watch. I I think – You couple this together with what happened a couple weeks ago. Dean Phillips, the Minnesota Democratic congressman, decided to run in the Democratic primary. Now you've got a major Democratic senator, who I know Sungmin has covered so well, and and John too, of course, is um, someone if he decides, and he's such a a maverick in terms of his thinking, his independence, if he decides to run on a no-labels ticket or an independent ticket, you have a mounting threat against President Biden's Democratic coalition. Even if Biden has no real threat to the nomination – I mean, this is going to complicate the political map. We saw what happened in 1992. Uh, Ross Perot uh, got 19% of the popular vote. I'm not sure what Senator Manchin, if he went with Larry Hogan or 
Senator Romney what he could do, but uh, it would get it would get somewhere. All right, hold that thought because we're going to talk a little bit more about Joe Manchin, not only on the national stage but also in the Senate. It has impacts there too. But we'll take a little breath first. Back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then, just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. All right, gang, let's get back to the news roundup. The abortion question was huge in Ohio, and it's huge with you, too. Lots of you have been writing in as we're talking about this. Adam writes to us about abortion limits. This seems to me to be more simple than most people make it out to be, since neither side has any clue to the existential question of when life begins. It probably makes sense to set it at about 20 to 24 weeks since this seems to be our understanding of the beginning of consciousness. That's Adam's take. And another listener writes to say, conservatives don't seem to understand that folks actually just want to mind their own business. And that brings me back to Joe Manchin, the famously anti-abortion rights Democratic senator from West Virginia who announced this week that he's bowing out of his Senate career touring the country to see if there's space in the middle for maybe a candidacy. We talked to Robert Costa a little bit before the break about what a no-labels or third-party candidacy might mean. Let's talk about the Senate for just a moment. Democrats already defending 23 seats next year, including three held by independents. That's compared to just 10 seats for Republicans. That means Democrats are defending a bad map John, Joe Manchin, I think, just made it worse. Joe Manchin just made it worse. I can't think of the last uh, the last Democrat who won statewide in West Virginia. That is going to be a very hard seat for the Democrats to hold on to and a great pickup opportunity for the Republicans. I'm sure that Chuck Schumer groaned and uh, uh, grimaced when he heard the news. I, I, what had looked like a, the possibility of the of, uh, a good chance – for the Democrats to hold on to the majority, I think, think uh, just got a little slimmer. Um, Robert, Mitt Romney says he's been begging his buddy Joe Manchin not to do it, not to run for president, no labels. It can only help elect Donald Trump, he says. Um, what That's conventional wisdom that a third-party candidacy definitely hurts Joe Biden for sure. Robert F. Kennedy has been polling lately, and I hate to focus too much on polls, seems to be he might be hurting Trump more. And I realize we're a year out, but what are campaigns telling you about this conventional wisdom that a that a mansion candidacy or any type of Mitt Romney, no label, never Trump, Republican or moderate Democratic candidacy actually does to the race? Uh, my motto as a reporter is assume nothing in the campaigns. Yes, they see the polling, but no one knows what it's going to happen. I mean, that's cliche, but 
we're in such a fluid moment. A month ago, foreign policy, Israel, Gaza, this was not even at the front of the campaign conversation. And now you have Robert F. Kennedy out there, along with Dr. Cornell West, who are running left-leaning independent campaigns, which Democrats don't love because in a state where they even get one or two or three percent, it could be a big problem. And if no labels is out there, yes, they could give an option for moderate Republicans or centrists to go to a, a non-Trump option should he be the nominee. But at this point, it's it's all calculating and making bets based on different assumptions and on a conventional wisdom. And that's a really risky mm. business because – when you talk to allies of Nikki Haley, for example, they say, look, if Trump starts to be convicted or near convicted early next spring, maybe the Republicans move away from Trump. And this whole game of having a no-label ticket or something else, it'll wither away. And uh, Biden's allies say he's in a very strong position because the party still believes he can beat Trump. And uh, if you want to take him on, take him on. But they're not worried about Dean Phillips too much. But they did make sure that the New Hampshire primary doesn't have delegates. He's going to be spending time there. All this is to say... I almost I, I respect polling to a point, but it really tells us so little about a time where our entire political climate is unpredictable, fluid, and, and, and incoherent at times. And that and that's exactly why my motto, and I'm not alone in this for 2024, is let's talk about the stakes, not so much the odds. Talking about the odds tends to be a tends to be a parlor game. Um, so, men to Robert's point, what, what is the White House saying? You just mentioned before the break, Joe Biden is polling at 38 percent, dismal foreign incumbent. But what are they saying about how talking about the stakes is going to help them in this election and, and how they're planning for a three, four, maybe five way race? Right, right. Well, I mean, Biden world, the broader Biden orbit really has been watching the threat of these um, potential, you know, quixotic challengers to President Biden. Obviously, we're focused on the possibility of Joe Manchin after his retirement yes, retirement announcement yesterday from the Senate. Obviously, there has been a lot of focus on a little otherwise little known congressman from Minnesota, Dean Phillips, who is launching his own who has who has launched his own bid for the Democratic nomination a couple of weeks ago. Um, obviously, they're I think they're looking more towards just the kinds of discontent that this signals throughout the broader party. Because if you look at polling, and again, not relying too much on polls, but a broad, a consistent trend, at least in our AP polling, shows that even among Democrats, even while even if Democrats do generally like Biden, they like what he's done in office, and they like him, they like the no, sort of normalcy that he has brought to the White House after four years of Donald Trump, they didn't want him to run again. A lot of that is his age. He is turning 81 later this month. Um, and there are certainly other reasons as well. But they, you know, the, the president's aides, the broader campaign, the broader Democratic Party is really going to be focused on, okay, President Biden is our choice. And it certainly is a choice. This is not going to be a referendum on President Biden's governance in 2024. It is a choice between what uh, Biden and the broader party represents and what Rep what Republicans, particularly Donald Trump, represents. And you're going to hear that argument over and over through mm. November 2024. John, President Biden wants this to be a choice. Don't judge me according to the almighty. Judge me according to the other guy. I think that's one of his stock lines. How's the media doing with this formulation when we talk about the stakes? Made a lot of mista drastic mistakes in 16, and I'm afraid a lot in 2020 as well. In terms of 
moving away from drawing false equivalencies in terms of being able to cover the stakes of a race where one of the candidates, frankly, is anti-democratic. Those are the states of this election. How's the media doing right now? I think they're doing better. I think that's particularly when we look at Donald Trump. I think that there is a more uh, willingness to say that that what he that his claims are unfounded, that this is what he to, to report what he says and then say, well, this isn't true because actually it's this. Um, I, I do think that there is a tendency on the part of the media to want to fight. We want a contest. So I think that's why I think a lot of the third party uh, or, or, or potential third party candidates are getting a lot of attention. They see in the polling that there's not a lot of satisfaction with, uh, with a, a Biden-Trump uh, choice. Uh, and so we're looking for, for who else is out there. Well, in terms of a referendum on Joe Biden's presidency, Christopher has a view. He writes to say fixing the economy is what's going to win for Republicans hands down. Democrats absolutely destroyed America. Our economy is the worst it's been in decades, thanks to Biden. We've done entire shows around here about the actual health of the economy, people's experience of it at their kitchen table versus what the big numbers say. Those two things are different. The big numbers matter a lot less, a lot less than people's individual experience with interest rates and inflation and their own employment. So more to come on that question for sure. Well, speaking of Joe Biden, he's not just sitting around reading his 38% approval rating heading into his incumbent re-election. He visited Belvedere, Illinois to talk up the new UAW, United Auto Workers Union deal at uh, Stellantis Auto Plant and uh, to take a dig at Donald Trump. When my predecessor was in office, six factories closed across the country. Tens of thousands of auto jobs were lost nationwide. And on top of that, he was willing to cede the future of electric vehicles to China. That was Joe Biden speaking at the Stellantis plant on Thursday. The plant was closed during union strikes, but recently reopened as part of that agreement. Um, Robert, what does Biden's trip and the appearance tell us about where the campaign thinks his voters are and where they're skeptical? He did at one point make a point to say, I was with you on the picket line. My opponent went to a non-union plant and dissed you guys. So please don't forget it. He actually said, please don't forget it. He, and he's he's right. He can't have them forget it. I was with President Biden covering that visit to a picket line in Michigan. I also covered Trump's visit to a non-union facility. And when you listen to President Biden this week, it's such a microcosm of what he's facing in 2024. Uh, you mentioned some of the economic data. Unemployment's at a near 50-year low. But because of the pain people feel economically on inflation, the president and the White House know that that reality is the reality for most people, even if the data doesn't back it up in terms of seeming like the economy is in a recessionary state. And so they're out there. And he, why is he going to union halls? And he's trying to talk to the unions because he needs working people in this country to connect with what the administration's done, especially in terms of massive social spending, uh, infrastructure spending, the American Rescue Plan, and not have them forget that his administration stepped in with this kind of FDR-level spending early in his administration and uh, because he knows that there is a, in his view, in the view of Biden allies, a siren song to Trump on for union workers who see immigration as an issue that's taking jobs away from them. And Trump is appealing on cultural issues, on immigration. And so he needs to really bolster his economic argument again and again with working people. So, man, I know you were watching closely and you may have even been there. What was your take on Joe Biden's, I was really struck by his reminder to the UAW there, like, please don't forget it. Please don't forget it. Union Joe is here to say, please don't forget it. And he went out on the picket line. How important is this 
sector of voters that we could say maybe are represented by the UAW. He's got a lot of progressives really mad at him right now over Israel and Gaza. Right, right. It is such a critical part of his coalition. We did see in 2016 how those classic, you know, union workers who have maybe voted Democratic for decades really were um, gravitated to President Trump's or then candidate Trump's message of sort of this more like pro-worker, kind of forgotten American type of message. But you do see how President Biden, um, just kind of by his natural political nature, has won a lot of those voters back and how critical those voters will be uh, as he gears up for his re-election next year. He, I can't count how many times he has said that he is the most pro-union president in history. Mm-hmm. It is a line that his aides love to say. Obviously, he was the first president in known history, to, in known memory to actually stand alongside and join an active picket line. And they certainly don't want voters to remember that. And this is also why they were very closely, the people in the White House were very closely watching the UAW strike and making sure it didn't expand further, but also showing at every point of the the way that they were really standing with workers here to get a, what they say, a more fair contract. And I think that gamble, uh, and it certainly was a gamble because it could have had broader economic repercussions in these critical uh, swing states like Michigan, that's a gamble that I think uh, uh, played out pretty well for the president and his team. Joe Biden on that stage made sure to put the UAW t-shirt on uh, over his tie. Well, the UAW strike is not the only strike that's coming to an end. On Wednesday, SAG-AFTRA, which is the union that represents tens of thousands of performers, reached a tentative deal after four months of strikes. The union uh, values the contract at $1 billion. It includes increases to minimum compensation and pension and health plans. We've been talking about that on 1A. It also includes, quote, unprecedented provisions for consent and compensation to protect members from losing revenue if their likeness is rendered by artificial intelligence. That's according to SAG-AFTRA. Now, for the first time, workers will receive a streaming bonus for roles in successful streaming shows and movies. They weren't getting that before. SAG-AFTRA's negotiating committee voted unanimously on that agreement on Thursday. And I should also note that some of the staff at NPR and WAMU are part of SAG-AFTRA's media union, although that was that part of the union was not involved in this strike. Well, let's move it on to Miami, where Republicans, of course, were on that presidential stage for the third time GOP debate on Wednesday. Only five candidates met. Donald Trump wasn't there. It was Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Well, I can talk about President Trump. I can tell you that I think he was the right president at the right time. I don't think he's the right president now. I would be telling BB, finish the job once and for all with these butchers, Hamas. What we should do is ban TikTok, period. Now, we saw under former President Trump, he tried to ban TikTok twice, but was struck down by our federal courts. And I am upset about what happened last night. We've become a party of losers at the end of the day. We're a cancer in the Republican establishment. And I'll say this about Donald Trump. Anybody who's going to be spending the next year and a half of their life focusing on keeping themselves out of jail and courtrooms cannot leave this party or this country. Right, and it needs it. to be said plainly. 
ending on Chris Christie there, John Yang. Donald Trump didn't show up. I, I feel like we're sort of watching the contest for the speediest sloth in a way. I mean, these d- debates, we pay attention, and yet it's for something like second place. But what were your takeaways? Oh, I was going to say that, that, yes, Donald Trump didn't show up, but he was the main topic of, the, of a lot of the debate. Uh, he doesn't have to show up. He still c- commands the, the, the attention of, of, of voters and, and in some ways the media. Um, he is so far ahead in polling, in money, in all sorts of other things that he doesn't have to show up at these events. And the, there were some insults, of course. They get a lot of play on cable news, and I, and I get it. But does it go beyond that at this point? What, what are they gunning for? I think they're they're it's it's exactly what you said. They're trying to get on cable news. They're and you've got to break through. You got to be more and more sharper and outrageous in order to break through the chatter. The competition for attention, not necessarily for the nomination, and that's a very very weird dynamic. Well, more to come. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Maiden cookware? Their carbon steel cookware combines the best of cast iron and stainless clad, gets super hot, and is tough enough for grills or open flames. Remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Maiden Maiden. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MaidenCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics. With vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Let's get back to the conversation. We just heard that little postcard from the third Republican debate in Miami, which leads us to this message that we got from Margaret, who writes, The five Republican candidates' apparent obliviousness to the problem of climate change was surpassed only by their hawkishness and willingness to engage in aggressive foreign policy, especially Nikki Haley, who would seemingly have us at war with several countries. A frightening bunch to me. That's from Margaret. And as we step away from the debate a little bit, gosh, Iowa is just a couple weeks away at this point. Once you get to Thanksgiving in an election year, it's almost time for the Iowa caucuses. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who was at the debate in Miami, got the backing this week of Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds on Monday. I don't base my decision on polls. I take a look at who I believe is the right person for the right job. I believe that Ron is the right person for the right job. And I believe he's going to win. So, I mean, this question is for you. You're from Iowa, right? I'm pretty sure you are. I, I Indeed, I am. Yeah, so this is a critical <laughs> endorsement from the governor. How much of a difference does an endorsement like this from a popular governor mean heading into the Iowa, into the Iowa caucus at this point? 
I mean, if it were a fairly wide open and all things considered fairly equal race or even a much closer race, certainly it could make a difference. Kim Reynolds has been very popular in the state of Iowa. Um, Iowa is very reliably red at this point. And she's actually shown a little bit of, I mean, even though she had indicated that she would stay out at least for a while of endorsing in the primaries, she has shown that she likes Ron DeSantis, the two uh, governors campaigned together um, at the Iowa-Iowa State football game in September. I will have to point out here that Iowa, my alma mater, won, <laughs> as, we sh- <laughs> as we should. Um, and they seem to just like each other and get along. So in terms of who she ultimately chose in the primary, I don't think that was a surprise. But in terms of how much it affects him at the end of the day, I, I, I have a hard time seeing how much it really mm. propels him to actually win Iowa in, in every single early state and in national polling, the president or the former president, Donald Trump, is leading and and DeSantis is not even close. I will say the person who's kind of emerged as a second place, which is former South Carolina, Nikki Haley, is she's not even close either. So um, it, may matter, it, it may have mattered had it been a much closer race in Iowa, but I'm just really not sure how this matters now. This is no question that Republican primary voters are completely ignoring or or simply not concerned about the fact that John, Donald Trump is charged in four jurisdictions criminally with a major fraud case for a fifth one in New York, which we'll talk about. Um, they really don't seem to mind. We're going to talk for in just a minute about some of Donald Trump's other legal problems. But Robert, it was mentioned before these candidates in Iowa and elsewhere seem to be doing this back of the envelope math. Look, I have no chance of winning now, but maybe there's a 7% chance that if Donald Trump is convicted of felonies, enough Republicans will abandon him at the convention. And boy, oh boy, if that happens, I'll be there, even if there's a 4% chance of it happening. That is, I guess, for some of them, the back of the envelope strategy. But just this week is so indicative of the challenge that is uh, facing these Republican candidates. I began the week on Monday sitting at 60 Center Street in New York behind Donald Trump, the former president, as he testified in his own fraud trial. And then on Thursday, I was in Miami listening to these Republicans on stage in a debate, and they were barely talking about Trump at all unless it was Governor Christie and occasional scattered remarks by the others. They're running in their own political orbit to try to become this Trump alternative, the most credible non-Trump person. But until the field winnows down, they're all taken from the same constituency, that non-Trump vote. And it's hard to see how any of them start to get enormous traction uh, at this point. It's a, a crowded field helps Trump, and that's how the Trump people see it too. Uh, speaking of being in the gallery at, in the courthouse in New York, Robert, uh, Judge Engeron, who is the judge in Trump's $250 million civil fraud trial where his right to do business in New York has basically already been taken away, although it's under appeal and we'll see. Um, the judge begged Donald Trump's lawyers to control him during his testimony earlier this week. What was that like to watch? Uh, what happened during the testimony to your eyes? It's interesting because there's not a live video feed of the court proceedings to the public. You can watch them uh, inside the courtroom itself or they have an internal feed you can watch. So only reporters there are able to see the actual interactions. And I was – I noticed, let's say, how Judge Angoran was really a- angry with former President Trump, and Trump barely looked at him. And Trump's voice was very calm throughout his entire testimony, but he 
go on tangents all the time that flustered the judge and told forced the judge to say to Trump's lawyers, keep this guy in line. But Trump seemed to know that he was getting under the judge's skin, but he can't stand the judge either, as his truth social postings indicate uh, in every way. And as his bank account indicates, he's been fined twice for uh, violating the orders of the judge not to attack court staff, including the clerk, for a total of $15,000. The fine is meaningless to Donald Trump, but the two-time admonition from the decider of the case and the fact finder in this case might spell bad things for Trump's behavior and the ultimate outcome of this case, and we're going to stick with it. But speaking of court, you know, we're, we're talking so much about the huge lead that Donald Trump has in the primaries, whether an endorsement in Iowa makes a difference. And in other courtrooms around the country, John, they're deciding if Donald Trump is going to be on the ballot at all. This was in Minnesota this week. In Wednesday, we've talked about the Fourth Amendment. The Minnesota Supreme Court dismissed a lawsuit that tried to bar the former president from the state's ballot. This is, of course, from the 14th Amendment, Section 3. This says if you've taken an oath to the Constitution and then you do a rebellion or insurrection against the Constitution, you can never serve in public office again. Lots of these cases are going on around the country, but why did Minnesota say no dice here for now? Well, I have to admit, I have not read the decision, but I think that, that this, as you say, this has been going on around the country, and it's going to be something uh, that uh, the the big question is whether it's actually going to make it to the Supreme Court before the election, and the chances are, I think, pretty low to even make it to the Supreme Court yeah. or to be really to get to the Supreme Court because mm-hmm. you've got there's a lot of steps you got to go through in order to get there. So there's another case going on in Colorado right now that's been argued, and I think we're getting closing arguments next week in a Colorado case. I get that there are cases all over the country, and if they're decided differently. Somebody has to weigh in. You're not going to be off the ballot in just one state. That tells me that maybe it's going to eventually go to the court even if they reject it. I, but I think that, that, that these are you – know, you're right. I was going to say that this is a state-by-state issue. But it is the U.S. Constitution um, uh, and conceivably he could be knocked off uh, across the board. I do think it's, it's, it's unlikely. That he'll be knocked off. Yeah. I, I think that's probably right. I think it is going to go to the Supreme Court. Most of the experts think it's going to have to be – you can't be off the ballot in one state and not in another. We're going to have to have one decision here. We'll see where this goes on, whether Donald Trump is disqualified from being on the ballot at all for having sent that crowd to the Capitol on January 6th. That's John Yang from PBS NewsHour. We're also speaking with Robert Costa of CBS and Sungmin Kim from the Associated Press. Uh, Sungmin, in an interview – on Univision that aired on Thursday, we talk about the stakes of this election, whether Donald Trump's going to be on the ballot in this election, how he's performing in Iowa in this election. But this is critical. President Trump talked about what he might do, what he will do if he's reelected. You know, when you're president and you, you've done a good job and you're popular, you don't go after them so you can win an election. They've done indictments in order to win an election. They call it weaponization. And the people aren't going to stand for it. But yeah, they have done something that allows the next party. I mean, if somebody, if I happen to be president and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them. Mostly, that would be, you know, they would be out of business. They'd be out. They'd be out of the election. Um, Sungmin, this is Donald Trump running for president, saying pretty loudly and clearly what he's going to do. What's going on here? 
Right, right. Well, I mean, in his first term in office, the former president has had shown no hesitation in using sort of the powerful levers of government uh, and, and trying to get them to bend to his will. I mean, I just just covering Trump, you saw, for example, him seeing, for example, the Justice Department not being um, an independent entity like um, other presidents, particularly President Biden, has treated it as, but he saw the Justice Department as kind of his own personal lawyers, which is why when you had attorney, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, you know, help sort of, you know, launch the, you know, get the get the mo- get the get the wheels in motion for the Russia probe, it really angered the former president. And you're talking about these, you know, allegations of the weaponization of government, and this is what he is going to do in a second term. We saw it happen in the first term. And and that was with the potential political constraints that he may have been facing because he was up for re-election. If he does win a second term, obviously he will not be on the ballot for a third time. And, and there are certainly Republicans who are concerned and certainly Democrats who are concerned about the lack of restraint that a, a, pre, a second term President Trump would have. And I think the um, a, a lot of the focus right now, um, and certainly there could be more, is going to be on what President Trump would do in office should he be reelected. And I think President Trump certainly is happy to highlight that. But, you know, Democrats are happy to highlight that, too, because, again, showing because, again, they believe that it shows to voters the stakes that are um, the the, the potential stakes uh, next year. Yes, indeed. Uh, we we talk about our pledge. Well, I should say my pledge in this election to de-emphasize the polls, to emphasize the stakes. And here is the candidate, the former president, gunning for the Oval Office, telling us exactly what the stakes are. Well, let's go to the Supreme Court. General Prelinger. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Guns and domestic abuse are a deadly combination. As this court has said, All too often, the only difference between a battered woman and a dead woman is the presence of a gun. Armed abusers also pose grave danger to police officers responding to domestic violence calls and to the public at large, as Zaki Rahimi's own conduct shows. That was Solicitor General Elizabeth Preligar. On Tuesday, the justices had oral arguments about whether states can prevent people under domestic violence-related restraining orders from having guns at all. So what do we know about the facts of U.S. versus Rahimi, John? This is about a guy named Zaki Rahimi He uh, from Texas. He beat up his girlfriend in a parking lot. She got a restraining order against him. In the restraining order, he was told, you cannot have a gun. If you, have, if you do have a gun, uh, it, it's a violation of federal law. That didn't stop him. He continued to use a gun. He shot up a a car in a road rage incident. He shot into a house of a guy who said uh, disrespected him uh, online on social media. Uh, He fired a gun in a fast food restaurant when his friend's credit card was declined. So this is important, I think, on two levels. One is that law itself, whether that law can stand or not, but also the rationale, what, how courts look at, at, at gun laws in the future. Remember last year, Uh, The Supreme Court said it's no longer a balancing test. It's no longer uh, does the government have a good uh, good reason for infringing a right. They said it's history and tradition. You have to find an an analogous law. Maybe it doesn't have to be the identical law, but it has to be. uh, Is it keeping with the history and tradition of the United States? Well, when the founders were writing the Constitution, forget about domestic violence. Women didn't have rights at all. I, and I think that you heard a lot of that in the oral arguments. I think that that it was it was fairly clear in the oral arguments that a majority believes this law should stand. 
The question is how you go about it. What's the rationale? The, the, the three uh, liberal justices were kept pounding away on the history argument, saying, doesn't this show, the fact that we are agreeing on this, doesn't this show that, that history and tradition uh, doesn't work? The conservatives were focusing on uh, the fact or, or on the argument that the Second Amendment only protects law-abiding and and uh, responsible hmm. citizens. Well, this is a court that's been extremely expansive when it comes to gun rights. They always take a side-eye look at any gun restrictions, and we're going to see what they do about this critical issue. Um, we got just about a minute before we're got to go, but I want to give, you guys are all such great reporters on the trail and, and, and nationally. Just take 30 seconds. Let's make it quick, but Sungmin, you go first. Just tell me what you're watching for next week. What's in your notebook? What do you have your eye on in a word? I am watching to see if the government shuts down again, Todd. I oh, mean, yeah, since that. You and I, yeah, since you and I were baby reporters on the Hill, we have been fighting this fight. But this one is different for many different reasons. And because it is the first major legislative test for the new speaker, Mike Johnson obviously came into power after Kevin McCarthy was toppled. And he is facing the same problems that Kevin McCarthy did, yep. kind of trying to bridge the divides between the moderates and the conservatives in his caucus. He, do, he cannot pass spending bills on his own as as we saw this week. So is he going to kind of have to compromise uh, once the November 17th uh, deadline bears down? We'll see. All right. Government shutdown version 17.0 from Sungmin Kim. Robert, real quick, what about you? I think you just watch to see if anyone starts to drop out of the Republican presidential mm. race. Uh, so many donors are anxious. Uh, the money's not there for a lot. Doug Burgum and Asa Hutchison didn't make the, the stage. Where, what do they do? New Hampshire's Governor Kristen Nunu says he doesn't see a path for either of them. Will they listen? Mm. Will they follow Mike Pence off the campaign trail? John, how about you? Well, I'm looking forward to next week. I, my uh, uh, view is sort of uh, skewed toward the foreign news. I think the, the president's, President Biden is going to sit down with the Chinese uh, leader, uh, uh, Xi Jinping, on uh, Wednesday yeah. in, uh, in California. And also just the ongoing war, uh, Israel trying to wipe out Hamas, the rising calls for a ceasefire, a humanitarian ceasefire, uh, and Israel's uh, adamant that this not happen. And the potential effectiveness, if any, of this negotiated sort of four-hour window regime scheme that they've come up with to allow people to to go out and get medicine. Right. And as you pointed out earlier, the division of the Democratic Party. Indeed. On that issue, my big thanks go to John Yang Weekend anchor for PBS NewsHour. Also to Robert Costa, chief election and campaign correspondent for CBS and author of the great book Peril. And from the Associated Press, my friend and colleague Sun Min Kim covering the White House at the AP. Thank you all so much. Well, I want to leave you now with a little bit of history that was made at the Country Music Awards this week. Singer-songwriter Tracy Chapman, she won Song of the Year for her 1988 hit Fast Car. The song was a resurgence, had a resurgence in popularity in July after country star Luke Combs released a cover of that famous single. Chapman was the first black person to win the category in the award show's 57-year history. So I remember when we were driving, driving in your car, speed so fast, I felt like I was drunk. City lights day out before us, and your arm felt nice, wrapped around my shoulder, and I, I had a feeling that I belonged. We'll be back with the global edition of the News Roundup in just a moment, so stay with us. We've got a lot to cover.
This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. By the end of this message, two people will be told they have cancer. Yes, every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. But by the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. A gift of any amount to the American Cancer Society can help those facing cancer get free rides to care or a free place to stay closer to treatment. Donate today at cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor Project Lead the Way. Today's world is driven by STEM. At Project Lead the Way, they believe learning by doing helps every student in every grade be STEM successful. Learn more at pltw.org NPR. Coming up on the Global Edition of the News Roundup, Israel's bombardment of the Gaza Strip continues for the fifth week as IDF forces push deeper into northern parts of Gaza. It all follows the surprise attack by Hamas that killed more than 1,400 people in Israel. More than 10,500 people have been killed in Gaza. Meanwhile, Bangladesh garment workers have a big win. And in Washington, a fond farewell. It is a moment with some heartbreak in it. But it is also a moment of joy because we are celebrating the success of the world's longest-running conservation program for a single species. The National Zoo's three celebrity giant pandas are heading home to China. All that and much more with our panel this hour. Saleha Mosin is senior Washington correspondent at Bloomberg News. Her book, Paper Soldier, How the Weaponization of the Dollar Changed the World Order, will be out in March. Saleha, welcome back. Hi, thank you for having me. Great to have you. Anton LaGuardia is here, diplomatic editor at The Economist and author of War Without End, Israelis, Palestinians, and the Struggle for a Promised Land. Anton, hello. How how are you? Good to be with you. Very good to have you. And Amy McKinnon is here, national security and intelligence reporter at Foreign Policy. Amy, great to have you back. Happy to be back. Well, thank you all for being here. The White House, let's get right into it. They say that Israel has agreed to put in place four-hour daily humanitarian pauses in its assault on Hamas in northern Gaza. Here's National Security Council spokesman John Kirby on Thursday. There will now be two humanitarian corridors allowing people to flee the areas of hostility in the northern part of Gaza. The first such corridor, open between four and five hours every day for the past few days, has already enabled many thousands of people to reach safer areas in the south, away from the main area of ground operations. The second route along the coastal road will enable many more thousands to reach safer areas in the south. Uh, Saleha, before that announcement from the White House, these talks had been going on all week. What did it take to get to this agreement finally? You know, the first step is really what the humanitarian crisis was. As you just mentioned, the death toll from Israel's response to Hamas's October 7th attacks is now well over 10,000 people. And roughly half of those are children. Uh, We're expecting to see even more children to be found in the coming days in the rubble of some of the destruction. One thing I will note is that during war, data and information can come through quite muddled, so the U.S. hasn't independently verified these figures. But talking about how we got to this point, um, first of all, there's a recent Bloomberg News article that pointed out that U.N. Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez is calling the situation a crisis of humanity. So, Obviously, the U.S. has a role here. Um, the White House had intense discussions. It was prime minister to president. 
It was uh, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense. It was Antony Blinken from the U.S., the Secretary of State, all in intense talks to get what they wanted was to be a longer than three-day pause. Um, Biden did express to reporters that that's what he wanted a couple of days ago. And what they've accomplished is starting off with four-hour daily windows for a humanitarian corridor. Uh, we have seen the president here in the U.S., Biden, express some frustration at Israelis, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying that he did think that it took a little bit longer than he had hoped to get to this point. Uh, but at least we're here. And I think we'll see over the next few days how the rest of the talks to get mm. longer pauses do unfold. Those longer pauses, Anton uh, Saleha mentions, the United States wanted three days. They got four hours. Is that enough for civilians, for people to be able to go out and, and get their basic needs met during this catastrophe? It's a step forward, but it's not enough. Uh, the United States and the UN and everybody else wants a lot more aid coming uh, into Gaza. Uh, but, uh, you know, part of the reason for this is also to try and create windows of time in which hostages might be able to be released as part of the negotiations that are taking place out in Doha. Um Amy, what's the situation in southern Gaza? We talk so much about northern Gaza. That's where Gaza City is, the major population center. But also Israel told civilians to move south. Now there are reports that the south is under bombardment as well. Um, what is the situation in the south and what is the United States saying? So the South has been under bombardment as well since pretty much the beginning of this war. Israel has not described the South as a safe zone. It has just described it as a safer zone. Mm. So the North is very much the, the focus of the IDF's uh, military operation right now. Um, IDF troops are now reported to be deep into Gaza City. Um, and that's where they believe that the um, the kind of critical mass of Hamas fighters, of Hamas infrastructure are, is in Gaza and underneath Gaza, underneath these tunnels. Um, which So it's that's going to be the locus of the most uh, intense phases of the fighting. But that does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that, that South Gaza is safe. Um, there has been countless reports of, of strikes just across Gaza. Um, and so there really is nowhere that anyone can definitively say is, is safe at the moment. Um, Anton, you alluded to talks over hostages going on in Doha and Qatar. T tell us a little bit more. What's the status of those talks? Well, there's been a constant flow of people in and out of Qatar uh, who are uh, is a kind of paradox of a country. It is uh, home of the biggest American base in the Middle East and sort of CENTCOM's big air base out of Aludeid, but it's also host, plays host to Hamas leaders in the country. So it's a natural venue uh, to discuss uh, the release of hostages and negotiate with them. And you've seen uh, both the Israeli and the American, uh, the Israeli head of Mossad and uh, Bill Burns, the head of the CIA, uh, out in Doha to try and negotiate the modalities of releases. Precisely what is likely to happen is hard to say. There's lots of contradictory reports, anything from one or two hostages being released to up to 100. Um, uh, consensus seems to fall around the fifth, 10 to 15 mark. Uh, but the it is unclear what the um, counterparty would be. Would it be just a humanitarian pause of three days, as one report suggests, or would it be uh, more than that? Um, there are 
240 hostages. One of the extraordinary things about this crisis is that no one is quite sure how many there are. Uh, they're not all accounted for. And part of the complication is that uh, they are held by different groups. The majority of the hostages appear to be held by Hamas, but a smaller number are held by Islamic Jihad, which is a a uh, Islamist faction even closer to Iran than Hamas is. And then there seems to be 20-odd people held by a mixture of, you know, criminal gangs and other groups. Mm. So the negotiations are extremely difficult. And given the fighting and bombardment that's taking place, it's quite also very difficult to get people out. Also a mixture of Israelis, of course, foreign nationals, farm workers from Thailand, all part of the mix. Michael in Ohio emails us, one of the listeners, many of you are reaching out here. There needs to be a call by all nations, especially the Arab nations, for Hamas to surrender if there's a true wish for this conflict to end. That's Michael's take in Ohio. But um, Saleha, this week, as we step back a little bit from the catastrophe on the ground, it was sort of the first time this week that a conversation started on what the future of Gaza might look like after the war. Here's Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu speaking to Fox News on Thursday. We don't want to seek to govern uh, Gaza. We don't seek to occupy it, but we seek to give it and us a better future in the entire Middle East. So, Saleha, there was a conversation. There, there's Netanyahu saying we might wind up being responsible for security in Gaza after pulling out of there in 2005. A conversation started on the U.S. end about the Palestinian Authority and what a future for Gaza might look like there. Um, what are the contours taking shape here? And is, does any of it really coalesce while the bombs are still flying? That's the question. You know, right now in the thick of it, in the fog of war, it's hard to 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 really be able to see the shape of what could come next. But those discussions do have to start. Now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is uh, went to Tokyo to meet with his group of seven counterparts to focus on the Israel-Hamas war and talk about what could possibly be next. It was in Tokyo that Secretary of State Blinken told reporters uh, that the U.S. wants any post-war governing plan for Gaza to include a Palestinian, Palestinian-led governance and a Gaza that is unified with the West Bank under Palestinian authority. Uh, one key quote that kind of jumped out at me was he said, quote, we're clear, we're very clear on no reoccupation, just as we're very clear on no displacement of the Palestinian population. So Antony Blinken, Amy, is uh, clear on those things. Is anybody else clear on that vision? I mean, this has been the kind of million-dollar question almost since the beginning of this. Is 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 what comes next? You know, Israel has stated that it wants to to fully oust Hamas, which also, in addition to being, you know, a very violent militant group, is has a political wing which does the day-to-day governance of Gaza. And so then the question is: This is also a kind of a war of regime change, uh, in addition to a counter-terror operation. Mm-hmm. And then who then governs Gaza? What happens to Gaza after? Um, Almost by a process of elimination, you can kind of see certain contours of options, right? People talk about bringing back the Palestinian Authority, but there is just a whole bag of questions and concerns around whether that's even feasible. Including their own legitimacy among the Palestinian population in Gaza, including in the West Bank, a whole bunch of corners to turn before before that vision can can start to coalesce. Um, I mean, do any of these visions include the massive reconstruction that's going to be needed in Gaza before it can even start to look at a future? Uh, that's absolutely going to be an integral part when you think about 
about a post-war Gaza. I mean, I think already um, there's data that 11% of the buildings in Gaza have been destroyed under the bombardment so far. And I think there's clearly an expectation that that's only going to continue and that number is only going to increase. Um, France held a, a conference this week on on on. On, the, on this question of reconstruction of Gaza, which is attended by dozens of countries and international aid organizations and, and non-profits. And the, 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 the toll, the, the cost of this reconstruction is going to number well into the billions of dollars. But what we've seen in the wake of, of past wars is that it has been, uh, reconstruction efforts have just been beset by by bureaucracy, by screening, by um, the, the, the so-called Gaza reconstruction mechanism, which was an effort um by various part by Israel, Egypt, to screen materials going into Gaza to make sure that they couldn't be uh, passed on to Hamas, but that delayed things. And so just many, many questions um, and many, many logistics of, of what that what that process will look like. And that's, of course, just, just one piece of, sure. of the future puzzle. And as we zoom back in on the, the day-to-day of this conflict, Anton, the Israeli military, the IDF, says its troops had advanced into the heart of Gaza City. There was video released by Hamas that showed intense street battles. Now, that video hasn't been independently verified, but what do we know about what's actually happening in Gaza City on the ground, on the corners right now? Well, it's episodic. We see what we see from the outside, which is the sort of intense uh, bombardment. And we've also seen uh, a number of journalists who've been embedded with Israeli forces uh, who've gone in and out of Gaza, usually from uh, um, sort of the northern edge of, of, the, of the war zone. Um, and, uh, you know, the scenes they describe are, are of uh, a kind of lifeless wasteland uh, where, you know, often the, the most striking thing is a sound uh, that you hear that you don't hear. There's no sort of daily life anymore. And what you hear is uh, drones overhead and, um, you know, the sound of fire in, in, in the background. Um, uh, soldiers talk of IEDs, of tunnels, and of uh, you know the reasons for them being a, for you know for which they feel they are justified in fighting this this war, um, and uh, you know you also is quite striking. The one scene was of you know one crew captured a group of Palestinian civilians leaving the sort of these sort of husks of buildings, these empty skeletons. Uh, sort of under the white flag during one of the temporary uh, uh, sort of moments of quiet or temporary truces that the Israelis had allowed for civilians to evacuate under the white flag. And even as they were filing down the Salahadin Road uh, to head south to that safer zone, you could hear the you know clatter of automatic weapons mm. in the background. Um, so you see these episodes, but it's hard to figure out exactly what the big picture is. I mean, that, you know, one assumes that the Israelis will continue to advance. They are by far the strongest force. And the question is really not whether Hamas can hold the territory, but whether Hamas can keep fighting, can survive, and emerges from the wreckage of the war whenever that ends, uh, still standing. And whether Israel can meet its stated aim which is the eradication or certainly the disabling of Hamas. Well, the world, of course, obviously, is watching. And so are diplomatic corps all around the world. On Monday, South Africa pulled diplomats out of Israel. Chad has pulled its charge d'affaires last Saturday. Um, Saleha, not only are diplomats leaving Israel, but South Africa will be issuing its Israeli ambassador a formal reprimand. Um, how unusual are these this diplomatic level of reprimand? We're used to seeing votes in the UN, but this is this has taken on a new dimension. 
Yes, it's taken on a new dimension. It is unusual. Uh, this development has just started a formal reprimand like this and like the ones that you cited. They have the potential to deepen divisions between those countries and Israel. Talking about South Africa specifically, um, South Africa also recalled its diplomats from Israel because they want to reassess their relationship with the, the country. So this isn't coming completely out of the blue, this kind of reprimand, but it does show that there are a lot of different uh, elements that are coming into play uh, with this Middle East conflict. And that pressure we get parochial about this, but the United States unwavering support for Israel is a key ingredient here. Amy, it's important. Um, are there signs that the United States um, unwavering backing of Israel is going to start to harm it internationally? Again, we're used to votes in the UN. We're used to Israel in the United States and one or two other countries kind of voting against the rest of the world. But if the level of diplomatic confrontation is escalating here, is there risk for the United States and is there a United States policy that might face pressure to change? I think what this makes is it makes diplomacy for the U.S. more challenging in the global, in the quote unquote global south. That's a clumsy phrase, but uh, forgive me as I use it for the kind of collective uh, phrase for um, countries beyond the U.S. and, and Europe. But um, I mean, because they've been on a diplomatic offensive uh you know, with the global south over Ukraine to try and get these countries that have been, you know, a, a little bit more on the fence on board to, in support of Ukraine to kind of peel them away from Russia and, and and portraying Ukraine as, you know, a fight of an independent country against occupation by, you know, by a foreign power. And I think that a lot of countries we've seen reporting um, have, have tried to call the U.S. out over what they perceive as hypocrisy and its very strong support of Israel. So I think that's where I see this going forward in the weeks and months ahead. Is this going to make diplomacy um, with regards to Ukraine, I think, a lot more a lot more challenging? Anton, your own publication, The Economist, has been writing about this very issue as well. You may have been involved in that writing. Um, how long can the United States continue to take this position of of no daylight between the two governments or is it really unchanged? Does, does global memory of this conflict kind of fade after a year? What's the outlook? I mean, Israelis know from their own experience of wars and conflicts that the so-called window of legitimacy or the window of opportunity closes uh, after some time. And the factors that go into that depend on, on many things, including the political climate, the political climate in the States, and events on the ground. And this, this particular operation has been especially bloody. And the, uh, you know, the initial attack by Hamas was horrendous. Uh, and uh, it is, you know, and the response is, you know, is is also horrendous. I'm not equating the two, but is, it is also horrendous given the numbers uh, of of death uh, rising above 10,000. So there is a sense that things, you know, will not last indefinitely. How long it is is hard to tell. Will depend slightly also on internal U.S. political dynamics. But Amy is right that in this war, um, it is tied up. With uh, you know, this war comes on top of other crises in the world, and America is sensitive to uh, how it's playing out in the rest of the world. I think in a way that's different, and I think that's why you started to hear uh, Blinken talk about the need uh, for you know the recreation, the, the, the return to the path towards Palestinian statehood. 
uh, with a kind of emphasis that you haven't heard until recently. I think that's all part of mm. trying to speak to the global south and saying, you know, we care about this as well and we're looking for a better outcome at the end of this, and even though Israel has a right to you know, respond to Hamas. Trying to reset that conversation to a, an earlier era where so much of the world supported what was called what's called in uh, nostalgically the two-state solution. Well, speaking of world capitals, we can talk about Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Over 60% of Malaysians are Muslim, and that country has long aligned itself with Palestinians. Malaysia's Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim is publicly reinforcing his country's support for Hamas. Here he is at a rally in late October condemning Israel. It is a level of insanity to allow people to be butchered, babies to be killed, hospitals to be bombed, and schools to be destroyed. This is the height of barbarism in this world. Elevated high-volume speech there from the Prime Minister of Malaysia. Meanwhile, here in the United States, a new law is being proposed, the Hamas International Financing Protection Act, which would impose sanctions on foreign supporters of Hamas. So, Saleha, would would sanctions like this have a big impact on Malaysia? Do we know in Malaysia's case, we've we've picked them out, um, what kind of impact it would have on that country if it were to pass? So far, Malaysia is saying that they wouldn't recognize those kinds of sanctions, but the U- the world is really interconnected. Uh, that's what has brought a lot of the peace of the last 70 or 80 years, wherever we have had peace. And so anytime the U.S. does sanctions, it does affect any economy, no matter how large or small. So we would see an effect. Uh, but right now we're seeing also parts of Asia are kind of banding together uh, to find ways outside of the dollar-based sort of U.S. uh, as the central force of the global financial system to find a way to work around the U.S. foreign policy objectives that are sort of imposed through sanctions. Well, let's move on to France where there's mystery surrounding a Jewish symbol that's appeared on buildings in and around Paris for the better part of the week. Officials say that around 250 stars of David were stenciled on buildings in the past week and a half. French police are investigating a possible Russia role. Um, Amy, how, how would this kind of thing benefit Russia? Is this more of Russia's campaign all around the world to divide adversarial societies? In a word, yes. Um so French police uh, say they've detained two Moldovan nationals in connection with with this graffiti, um, which has led them to believe that uh, this was a, a kind of a Russian disinformation effort to sow anxiety and, and social tension in France. Um, the couple that, that are alleged to have been responsible for this were um, accompanied by a photographer, according to French reporting, who then mm. posted pictures of these uh, of the, of, the, of this graffiti online on accounts that are already associated on social media accounts already associated with Russian disinformation, known Russian disinformation networks. So that's kind of how they've been able to, to piece this back, um, piece this back to Moscow. Um, and I, you know, this is just one reminder, I think that, you know, Russia, Vladimir Putin, extremely opportunistic. Uh, um, and, you know, the overarching goal at the moment of the Kremlin is to is to undermine the West and to uh, just so disorder in any way it can. I mean, Russia is, is actually be quite close with Israel, but um, if they can can use the uh, the war in the Middle East to just under undermine the global order, that's something that they, they they clearly are willing to do. Just a reminder of how much it pays these days when you're following 
war or politics or anything that's important to you online, if you're feeling outraged about something that you see, you just have to be aware of the incentives of your outrage and who might have a stake in you feeling that way while you're looking at your phone. And I think this is a great example of that. And it plays out here in the United States too. Well, speaking of the United States interests and the broader Middle East, the U.S. military launched an airstrike on a weapons warehouse in eastern Syria this week. The Pentagon says the strike was retaliation for growing attacks on bases housing U.S. troops and that the weapons warehouse in Syria was used by Iranian-backed militias. Well, Amy, what specific attacks are the U.S. responding to and what's U.S. strategy here? We, we know already that Iran is looking for a broader war. That's my shorthand. It's more complicated than that. But, but give us the big picture here. So the Pentagon announced this week that it had struck um, arms depots in the Deir Ezzor region of Syria, which are believed to have been used by um, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and, and, and groups affiliated with that. Um, this is the second strike in recent weeks on these kind of arms depots in Syria. Because um, there has just been, this has kind of been one of the, um, just given kind of how, how horrific the news has been in the Middle East, the, the stories of attacks on U.S. troops has 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 gone fallen a little bit by the wayside, but there have been daily troops on U.S. daily attacks, sorry, on U.S. and coalition forces um, in Syria and Iraq. As many as forty-one, I think, I've read over the past few weeks. Some forty troops have sustained minor injuries, but twenty of them have 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 suffered from traumatic brain injuries. So that's that's a a, a pretty serious uh, life affecting injury there. And and to your point about Iran's Iran's wider game here, I mean, I. It's still kind of hard to see where this may go, but at the moment you really see Tehran trying to take advantage of, of the chaos in the Middle East and using these these proxy groups that it has across the region, these pressure points to to try and dial up the pressure on the U.S., on Israel, in the hopes of kind of igniting a broader regional conflict. Saleha, we have just a, a moment before a pause here, but how do you see the broader context of, of these probing attacks at U.S. bases and American responses? You know, they're really just worried about Iranian-backed militias, uh, as we just heard. And so the the broader context really is just trying to contain what's going on in the Middle East and the Iran component to that. Well, we mentioned Russia just a couple of moments ago in their internet-based, disinformation-based, divisive politics in Europe and around the world, frankly. And that demands that we turn our attention to Ukraine, so much of the world has turned away because as Ukraine continues to combat Russia's full-scale invasion that's lasted for nearly two years, the country is one step closer now to joining the European Union. In a new report, the European Commission said that ascension talks, accession talks, forgive me, should start with Ukraine and Moldova. It's been 18 months since Ukraine was accepted as a candidate for EU membership. Now, Ukraine has met four out of seven reform requirements for negotiations to start, and the EU says they still have work to do on fighting corruption and oligarchs and strengthening rights for minorities there. Since February of 2022, more than 18,000 civilians have been injured. Nearly 10,000 have been killed. But the UN says their own numbers are an underestimate because it's difficult to confirm numbers in areas with ongoing fighting. Let's turn to China-U.S. relations now. Hi, good girl. Good girl. Good job, Mama. You always do such a good job. That's giant panda Mi Zhang entering her FedEx crate Wednesday morning at the National Zoo in Washington. The trio of pandas was also farewelled by the deputy of mission from the Chinese embassy here in the United States. 
This morning, the Biden administration formally announced the meeting between President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco next week. It's also known as APEC. Um, Anton, what are the expectations for this meeting between the two leaders, especially after a, a very tense year between China and the United States? A very tense year and potentially uh, even more tense year next year uh, because uh, it is bookended by two elections, the election in Taiwan that may uh, bring a, uh, a sort of another independence-leading independence leading, um, uh, president and, of course, the America's own presidential uh, election. So I think there's a lot about trying to think, stop things from getting worse and putting a floor in the relationship, as the administration has said before, but also, I think, to try and nudge things along, for example, on uh, resuming contacts between the militaries of both China and the United States and to try and make progress on uh, climate change and, and other dimensions of relationship. Um, there's been a kind of huge amount of traffic between uh, Beijing and Washington uh, in recent weeks and months uh, in preparation for the summit. Um, and what, one of the things the Chinese obviously are very keen to ensure is that President Xi Jinping's uh, visit to United States territory, remember this uh, APEC summit is being hosted in San Francisco, uh, should go without a glitch and that he shouldn't be uh, humiliated mm. in some form. So there's um, very intense preparation to make sure all the protocol is done just right. Uh, we, we mentioned the return of the pandas, and it's a fun story for a Friday, but also important. I mean, I, I can't escape the the observation that the return of the pandas is engineered for our coverage right at the time when we're announcing that Xi Jinping is coming. It's always been a feel-good little piece of diplomacy between the United States and China, Amy. And this meeting takes place almost a year to the day after Biden and Xi met during the Group of 20 Summit in Bali in Indonesia. And a lot has changed and a lot has gotten worse since then. So, so panda... Um, photo ops notwithstanding, what do you think are the major friction points here? The panda story seems like a, you know, fun kind of curio story for a Friday, but it but it really does, I think, underline the the intense deterioration of in the relationship between between Washington and Beijing, given that the pandas are being recalled essentially uh, explicitly because of because of these tensions. I mean, I think as Anton alluded to, expectations for the summit are really pretty muted, um, and I think any any achievements are going to be just steps that prevent a, any further deterioration in the relationship. Um, so the kind of things that I think are going to be on the agenda are, you know, communications frameworks for managing competition between Washington and Beijing. Um, Axios reported yesterday that um, military to military communications are restarting. So that you know will be another important avenue that the US has really been has been lobbying for. They were closed after after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last year. Um, other items that are going to be on the agenda are areas of misunderstanding or areas of disagreement between the two countries, such as Ukraine and the Middle East. Um, the White House told reporters in a call yesterday that Biden is expected to try and press Xi um, to use his influence over Iran to encourage to to encourage Tehran not to escalate um, amid the conflict between Israel and Hamas. So keep expectations low. But if this meeting prevents things from getting worse, I think mm. that that everyone will see that as a win. And it's fascinating just to – we're back on the pandas, but to put it in context, it is a feel-good story. But you raise such an important point, Amy, that those pandas are going back. That has been an important part. Children love them. 
everybody loves pandas and they're going back and they're going back because the situation is so very bad. So you have to sort of see around the corners and and through the style section headlines at times like this to realize that these leaders have an awful lot of work to do. Well, moving ourselves south from China for just a moment, Indian officials in the capital of New Delhi, they closed schools to keep kids at home and out of dangerous air pollution. CNN interviewed Prakash, uh, Prakash Tokash. He's among more than 20 million people living in that densely populated city. The situation is very bad here. There is a lot of coughing, colds, and a burning sensation in the eyes. The kids are also sick. We could not take the kids out, and we also step out far less than we used to because of this pollution. The neighboring Pakistan is also experiencing dangerous levels of this particulate pollution. Saleha, what's causing this, this awful air quality in the Indian capital right now? Yeah, it's a thick layer of toxic haze. Uh, It's closed schools. 20 million residents are complaining about the bad air quality, why it's gray uh, and why their eyes are so irritated. Um, And it's a little bit hard to, it's, you know, it's right now they're saying that it's uh, extremely unsafe to be out there. A lot of the reason is sort of the post-monsoon season that creates this weird condition in the air where air pollution uh, kind of accumulates over this mega city that New Delhi really is right now. And so it becomes this blanket of a choking smog, and they're just bracing for the pollution to get worse before it Mm. gets better. The UN projects that by 2028, New Delhi will become the most populous city on the planet. Um, Saleha, what do you think the changing climate means for increasingly dense urban centers like New Delhi. We're we're focused there now. It's another one of the areas that seems like, I hate to be so pessimistic, but seems like to the layman that it can only get worse. You know, people don't realize that those things that we studied when we were kids in science, particulate matter, the ozone, silver dioxide, all those things are really starting to affect the air that we breathe every single day. So if it's happening in one part of the world, it's going to affect the rest. Just like a couple of months back over the summer when the wildfires in Canada were affecting the air quality in the East Coast in the United States. So we should all be sort of carefully monitoring the climate change politics around this. That's Salema, uh, Saleha Mosin. We're also speaking with Anton LaGuardia, the economist in foreign policies, Amy McKinnon. Let's turn to South Asia for just a moment where garment workers in Bangladesh have been protesting for higher wages. Bangladesh is second only to China in garment exports. Thousands of protesters took to the streets more than a week ago. Roads were shut down. Stones were thrown in shops and four factories were set on fire on Tuesday Authorities in Bangladesh announced a wage hike for garment workers that could come out to a monthly uh, minimum wage of $113. That's up from the previous minimum of $75 a month. So, um, Amy, it sounds like a significant victory for workers in Bangladesh. How could it affect clothing markets for Western countries? We get a lot of our imports from that part of the world. Well, it's a, it's a significant victory, but um, the unions in Bangladesh of garment workers are, are, are still pushing for more. Um, I mean, the wages f- for garment workers have been as low as $80 a month, and the, they're working for brands such as H&M, Zara, big, huge, huge fast fast fashion brands in, in the US and Europe. Um, one of the proposals that was, was levied was $113 as a minimum wage. That was rejected, and they're, they're now pushing for $200 a month to meet rising cost of living in Bangladesh, which has been caused in part by, by the war in Ukraine and, and, and rising fuel and fuel and uh, and staple food costs, um, there's been protests in the street, which have at, at times turned turned violent. Um, and I think just you know I, 
a very uh, kind of pointed reminder of of the human cost that goes into um, you know what happens when you buy an extremely uh, cheap T-shirt on the shelves mm. uh, in in U.S. cities. What's going on? What's going into that? Well, a staggering four million people work in the garment industry in Bangladesh. Their work earns fifty-five billion dollars a year in exports to the United States and Europe. That's an estimate from the AP. So, Amy, I mean, it's got to be significant that the government came to any kind of deal with garment workers on this issue. Oh, I mean, they it's a huge part of Bangladesh's economy. I mean, I think it's something like 80, 80% of the country's annual exports. Um, so there's, uh, you know, politically, economically, a real need for the government to find find a resolution on these issue and, and ensure that the garment workers, um, you know, can end their protests or willing to end their protests and, and get back to work because it could really um, quite quickly put a, a major logjam in, in the country's economy. Well, the international news bears down on Congress as it often does. Um, United States Representative Rashida Tlaib from Michigan this week was censured for her statements about the Israel-Gaza conflict, some of her statements specifically. Um, Here in the United States, um, after that censure, I think about 20 Democrats joined Republicans to censure Tlaib. Here's Rashida Tlaib speaking for herself uh, after the censure vote earlier this week. Speaking up to save lives, Mr. Chair, no matter faith, no matter ethnicity, should not be controversial in this chamber. The cries of the Palestinian and Palestinian and Israeli children sound no different to me. Why, what I don't understand is why the cries of Palestinians sound different to you all. The Congresswoman Saleha says that the cries of Palestinians sound different to members of Congress. And there was some proof of that from some of the comments that were made by Republicans during the debate this week as well. Tlaib also made statements that many, many Americans, especially American Jews, hear as downright hostile. Statements like, from the river to the sea. Many Americans are learning about that slogan for the first time. Many American Jews are not learning about it for the first time. And that came from the congresswoman as well. So we, we, we don't have the two hours it requires to parse all of this. But Saleha, what's your take on the censure of Rashida Tlaib and what it says about the state of this debate in Congress right now? You're right. It is a two-hour debate at minimum to really unpack everything. But the censure itself is a pretty rare rebuke. It's significant. Uh, She is the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress. But there are – this was not just party a party-line vote. There were a lot of uh, Democrats, 22 Democrats, who voted in support for that censure. Twenty, And it's a significant number, so not just Republicans beating up on her. Exactly. This is not a party line vote. It was 234 to 188, uh, but 22 supported that on the Democratic side. All right. Well, before we go for the week, um, while I have you all here such experts, let us know what's in your notebook. Anton, you go first. What are you looking for next week that's on your radar that that people should know about, in a word? Obviously, the Biden-Xi summit, which um, takes place on uh, Wednesday the 15th. Uh, we'll want to see the body language and the specifics of, of, of what the choreography is and what they actually say in terms of substance. And more important, what is cast forward? The second thing is shutdown. Will there be another, will there be a shutdown or another continuing resolution? And on what terms for the uh, support for Ukraine and Israel? And the last thing I might is the return of the crown, uh, and, uh, with the post Diana focus that it will have on television. The return of the crown. <laughs> the return of the crown. I thought you were talking about an actual physical crown, and then I realized you were talking about Netflix, and I was right on board. Thanks for that, Anton. Amy, how about you? 
Uh, I will also be looking for the return of the crown. Um, <laughs> As we but all in, in my notebook for the coming week, I'm I'm going to be looking back, um, and and something that has really been top of my mind over the past few weeks is is how we got to this point in Gaza, and whether Israel's response to the horrific, violent Hamas attacks of October seventh had to be this bloody. Was there a way from A to B to Israel's goal of of eradicating Hamas that could have been could have come at a, a at less cost to civilian life. So that that's something I'm looking at and working on this week. And I think many Americans are asking that very same question. Saleha, how about you? You know, I'm going to repeat one thing that Anton said, but just emphasize that the federal government shut down next week. The deadline to fund the government is one week from today. Yes. What happens, how that plays out has implications for the domestic economy here in the U.S. It has implications for war-related and humanitarian-related aid for the uh, Middle East and Europe. Um, And here at Bloomberg, we're always keenly monitoring for any implications of the shutdown and the uh, political potential, political fallout from it for markets and economy. It's the ninth or tenth version of the shutdown fight. I've lost count, but major implications both for Ukraine and for Israel and for Gaza, in addition for Americans themselves. I want to thank our great panelists this hour, Saleha Mosin, senior Washington correspondent at Bloomberg. Her new book, Paper Soldier, How the Weaponization of the Dollar Changed the World Order, will be out in March. Anton LaGuardia, diplomatic editor at The Economist and author of War Without End, Israelis, Palestinians, and the Struggle for a Promised Land. And Amy McKinnon, national security and intelligence reporter at Foreign Policy. Thanks to you all for joining us today. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer with help this week from Adrian Danhauser. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Willick. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply. On the TED Radio Hour, researcher Sasha Lucioni says AI can help us find climate solutions. But just training the technology itself uses a ton of energy. Training ChatGPT, for instance, emits as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime. Tech's climate conundrum. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.